Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Why now? I grew up not taking them seriously. You find a tick, you pick it off, you throw it off, and you you go about your day. The short answer is we don't know. And I I don't want to slander deer here, but many (laughs) of the researchers I spoke with said in their world, deer are just kind of big rats because Mm. they do carry these enormous amounts of ticks on them. And synthesize the sugar on their own. People kind of dismiss this as a woods problem. Success in some cases with mosquitoes. It doesn't matter if it's November, December, January, or June and July. If there's something to eat, ticks are going to be eating. And so really the, the, the way we're interacting with ticks probably has more to do with when we're choosing to go outside more than when ticks can actually, you know, thrive and survive. Tick-related diseases are on the rise in Missouri. Experts say changes in climate, human behavior, and food sources are just some of the factors creating a splendid situation for these suckers of blood and transmitters of potentially deadly disease. Rebecca Smith, reporter and producer for the KBIA Health and Wealth Desk, has covered this ticky topic in recent reporting, and she joins us today to share what she's learned from researchers and experts in different parts of Missouri. Rebecca, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today and uh, talk ticks. Oh, great. Now, Rebecca, reporting on ticks, you know, looking at their pictures, learning about the diseases that they carry, what is it that got you interested in this particular world? Well, so I'm born and bred Missourian. I'm from rural Missouri down in Rolla, and, uh, which is in your listening area. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when I grew up, I grew up outside the city and playing in the woods. And, you know, we never really thought about ticks. And so it was kind of a combination of factors from there, you know, thinking about just the kind of blasé nature I've always had around ticks and hearing a lot of people talking and speculating about this year was going to be bad because just how mild our winter was last year. And so I decided I wanted to do some, you know, good public public service-facing journalism, explore this a little bit, and it kind of just uh, exponentially grew from there. And I've now three stories in, and my friends are teasing me in the office about my uh, my TikToks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in the course of your, um, your reporting and your research, what was one of the maybe most fascinating or perhaps even like freakish facts that you learned? Mm. Well, so I think it's a lot of things. One, I think one thing that I love in this reporting, which is maybe a little less about the public health of it all and more the environmental aspect, is, you know, I was talking with a researcher who's now at the Department of Conservation, Deb Hudman, and we went tick hunting, where literally we went and traipsied through the woods trying to find ticks, which was pretty easy in Missouri. And, you know, I asked the question that she says she hears all the time, which is, why? You know, why in the world are ticks here? And she just said, the world's a buffet. You know, people got to eat, animals got to eat. And I just <laughs> love that idea of, yes, they may be an 
inconvenience. They may be annoying. They may carry disease, but there is a role, even for something you know like a blood sucking tick. So that was really fun and really fascinating. And then you know on the public health side of it, just learning how big and how prevalent prevalent excuse me the issue of tick borne illness is in Missouri. Because you know like I said, I grew up not taking them seriously. You find a tick, you pick it off, you throw it off, and you, you go about your day. And so just learning that this is a significant disease burden that it does impact public health in the state was really just really interesting and then just my last one which is kind of freakish and kind of gross but again Deb Hudman with the Department of Conservation uh, did this uh, tick-borne research study for several years that I know St. Louis Public Radio reported on at the time where people mailed her ticks mm. and she got ticks from every county and St. Louis City in the state an average of like 150 ticks per county or something like that and she said while Lone Star ticks are the most common in Missouri the most common one found in people's homes were dog ticks and like 20% of those were found in people's beds. Oh, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. There are grimaces going all around oh, here. No. <laughs> oh, I mean, but you said they got to eat, right? Exactly. So, um, what was it that Deb, uh, who has been dubbed uh, the tick lady, the tick lady, what was it that she was trying to learn about the ticks? So I think a lot of what everyone I spoke about said is that there's not a lot of quantification of tick-borne illness, of that vector-borne disease, like there is with mosquitoes, right? We've known mm -hmm. about malaria and all these mosquito-borne illnesses for a long time, and we've taken them really seriously. But while ticks have been around forever, no one really stopped to think, how is this impacting us until, as one of the researchers put it, you know, Lyme became kind of sexy, and people started talking about Lyme disease and the long-term impacts of that. And so I think Deb, especially, what she was really trying to do with that study was just figure out what is where, how much of those ticks are in those areas, you know, at least with a sample, and then figure out what diseases are present as well. So really just kind of trying to establish that surveillance in some ways of where they are, what kinds of ticks, and how serious that risk is. Mm -hmm. And to what extent, um, from the conversations that you've had, did it seem at all like Part of the reason there wasn't that much attention to ticks is that they're thought of as being in rural areas only rather than closer to the city. Yeah, that was a big thing that people talked about is that people kind of dismiss this as a woods problem, right? And I, I grew up in the country, again, right? I grew up about six miles outside of Rolla, Missouri on a little bit of acreage, and I did play in the woods all the time, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I came in with ticks, but it's really not reserved to that area because how ticks grow, how they, you know, move through their life cycles is by feeding on generally mammals, right? But especially in Missouri on deer, but on things like dogs and birds and humans. And so even if, you know, we lived in a perfect place where there may not be a single blade of grass, that doesn't mean that something couldn't bring ticks into that area. And so, yeah, ticks are a serious problem in rural communities, but they're also that serious problem in urban communities. And in some of my reporting, I also looked at how they were impacting in particular the unhoused population of Columbia mm. and the challenges that came from that with preventing tick bite, with having timely removal, and being able to avoid the stigma that can come with going to the ER and seeking treatment when people would be, you know, concerned of being labeled as drug seeking or those sorts of things. Okay. Now, the rise of disease is obviously something that uh, people are, are paying attention to and worried about. And this is the case um, across the country. 
Can you tell us about um, the way that forest land fragmentation and wildlife population, two things you've, you've kind of touched upon, how those factor into the increased incidences of disease? Yeah, so, you know, this was kind of that crux of why I looked into this issue, right, that catalyst. But what I found when looking at, you know, is climate change a role? Were things worse because of winter? It looks like, you know, that weather indication really was only one of those factors. And so that's where people started bringing up, well, humans are spreading more places. We're breaking up that fragmentation. We want to have that pretty lawn. You know, we want to have that view into the woods that's just bringing us closer and closer to those wildlife populations, again, that care huge amounts of ticks. And I, I don't want to slander deer here, but many <laughs> of the researchers I spoke with, you know, from infectious disease doctors who treat these to people that are working in surveillance, to people who are doing just the hard science research on these diseases, said in their world, deer are just kind of big rats because mm. they do carry these enormous amounts of ticks on them and are one of those big factors that allow ticks to move through those life stages, which interestingly Interestingly, this was something that I learned in the process, is that the winter just before may not have a significant impact on our ticks in Missouri mm -hmm. because their lifespan is actually up to three years as they move through those blood meals and take those meals that help them move from larva to nymph to adult tick. Mm -hmm. Now, before we go any further, uh, I'd like to bring another voice into the conversation, and that's because when it comes to bugs, there's an expert that we've called on before for insights, and he's been nodding along here in the studio, and that's Tad Yankowski, a senior entomologist at the Butterfly House. Tad, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So one of the diseases um, that is spreading, right, There's a, it's an emerging tick spread allergy. Um, and the CDC estimates that hundreds of thousands of people have contracted this. Um, it's a disease that can cause severe allergies to red meat and sugar. Good times. Uh, and one of the major carriers is a tick found in the Midwest and Southeast. Tad, what are the symptoms of this syndrome, uh, alpha-gal? Yeah, so alpha-gal, or some people call it the red meat allergy um, we're still, as scientists, really learning more and more about it each year. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that they have suddenly become allergic to red meat until they just have a regular meal for them and suddenly become very ill afterwards. And as this disease was becoming more and more common, they were finding links to people that said, well, I did get bit by a tick. Mm. And they started to overlap on a map where these um, people with allergies where it were popping up and comparing it to the range of the Lone Star Tick, and they found that it lined up almost perfectly. And that's when scientists started to take a very close look at this one species of tick, and they realized that it was most likely contributing to people becoming sensitive to red meat. Mm -hmm. And what is it that experts do say about this disease and then its emergence in this region? So... Scientists are still studying and learning more about it. Um, just recently, they found a very interesting discovery. They had hypothesized for years that a tick would feed on something that had alpha-gal sugars, uh, which humans do not have. And then they would then bite, that tick would bite a human, 
and introduce um, those chemicals to uh, the human uh, host, and they would become allergic to it from from being sensitive. And they thought they basically had to feed first on another animal and then come to a human. And just recently, uh, they've discovered that these ticks can synthesize the sugar on their own, and they may not have to feed on a different host before they bite a human. Uh, they could actually feed on a human, develop the sugars internally within the tick, and then uh, feed on a different person, and suddenly that person is now allergic to red meat. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is coming up, well, if this is the case, this tick has probably coexisted with humans as long as humans have been in North America. Why now? Why in the last 20 years has this, um, we'll call it a disease or syndrome, sort of appeared when it wasn't here 50 years ago, 100 years ago? And the short answer is we don't know. Mm. Um, There's some speculation that there may be an entirely extra uh, set of circumstances that we don't know yet that uh, the two things have to combine for the person to become allergic. Um, But that's, that's where the science is, and they're still, you know, taking a close look at that. Yeah. Do you think that we'll ever see calls to genetically modify ticks so that they cannot breed, you know, as we're seeing now in discussions about mosquito populations? I think if a lot of these diseases uh, continue to become more and more widespread and more and more common, uh, a lot of the various diseases that are um, spread by ticks are um, you know, things like Lyme disease that used to be very localized in the northeast have started to spread throughout parts of Canada and even into the Midwest. Other diseases are sort of taking similar paths. If they become serious um, issues, you know, if they become endemic across the country, I think there will be more and more research done to looking at things like sterile male releases of ticks. Uh, I don't know if there's significant research being done on that currently, uh, but it's shown success in some cases with mosquitoes, and I think uh, it will probably, you know, scientists will be taking a closer look at it. Mm -hmm. So climate change is something that people are are talking about a lot. We were just talking about the the heat wave that we're experiencing now. Rebecca, there's a, a misconception among some people who say that there's an increase in ticks because of last year's mild winter in Missouri. And you, you talked about that earlier. And that's not entirely true. So climate change in this context is a, a little more complicated, right? What is it that yeah. experts told you, Rebecca, about the way change in temperature um, affects ticks? Yeah, so, you know, this was a misconception that I had going into this reporting. You know, I said, you know, oh my gosh, we're going to have so many ticks this year. It wasn't cold enough to really, you know, knock them out and decrease the amount of ticks. And it turns out cold isn't that much of a risk to ticks because, as most of my researchers said, you know, they're survivors. They've been doing this for a long time. And so, you know, um, what they said is, in fact, the heat that, like what we're experiencing right now, is actually way more of a risk to tick populations because they have such tiny bodies that they're at massive risk for what's called desiccation, which is essentially that dehydrating to death. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, experts did say climate is definitely going to play a role in how we interact with ticks. Though my favorite quote, uh, it was not in any of my stories, unfortunately, is one of my experts from the CDC just said, well, you know, <laughs> they were feeding on dinosaurs, they're going to still be feeding on us. And <laughs> You know, it's just going to change that timeline, I think, of when Missourians and when people can kind of expect to interact with ticks because 
ticks are going to eat when there's food sources available. That's really what it comes down to. And so, you know, again, Deb Hudman, who did the, the tick-borne pathogen surveillance study, saw a huge uptick in tick submissions in November around hunting season. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it doesn't matter if it's November, December, January, or June and July. If there's something to eat, ticks are going to be eating. And mm -hmm. so really the, the, the way we're interacting with ticks probably has more to do with when we're choosing to go outside more than when ticks can actually, you know, thrive and survive. Mm -hmm. So Rebecca, Missouri, it ranks among the top five states uh, when it comes to cases of rickettsial diseases, which include Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And you produced another piece earlier this summer about staying safe when spending time outdoors. And just this last minute before our break, what top tips do you have for protecting ourselves from ticks? Of course. Well, the biggest thing you can do is make sure someone's checking you for ticks after you're outside, making sure that you can find ticks and get them off of you quickly, because the longer you have them on the body, the longer or the better the chance that you're going to, to catch something. And then the second thing that I would just say is, you know, also centering on that misconception is get the tick off properly. They recommend either using tick picks, picks which look like little crowbars, or using tweezers very carefully to remove the tick from the head, because by suffocating them with vast burning them off, or using tweezers to squeeze the body, you can actually make that tick throw up those pathogens essentially into your bloodstream. So remove them quickly and remove them properly is the biggest thing I can say. And then just make sure bug spray, light colored clothing, clothing much like with heat, and really have someone look you over when you get inside. Those are great tips. <laughs> thank you so much. Of course, thank you. Rebecca Smith is a reporter for the Columbia-based KBIA Health and Wellness Desk. When we come back, we'll continue talking bugs, starting with an update on nearly 100 Antilles pink toe tarantulas at the Butterfly House. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Now back to our conversation with Tad Yankowski, a senior entomologist at the Butterfly House in Chesterfield, Missouri. Uh, we also have other guests in the studio. Yes, I brought a few of my eight-legged friends with me today. <laughs> okay. And they are very well contained, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> so back in February of this year, Senior producer Emily Woodbury and STLPR engagement editor Lara Hamden they visited the Butterfly House where you were caring for 98 newborn Antilles pinkto tarantulas. There's video proof of it, and it is adorable. Now, those baby spiders were being illegally transported when federal agents intercepted that package they were in, and the Missouri Botanical Garden ended up taking the babies in. So it's been about six months. Tad, how are the spiders doing? Uh, they're doing great. Uh, they're continuing to grow and molt 
and with each successful molt they get a little bit bigger and uh, they are now officially big enough that we can start sending them to other institutions around the country. Mm-hmm. Now what has it been like to take care of them? Uh, It is a really neat experience when you're working with these animals that are endangered and you realize that uh, there's fewer and fewer of them in the world. And, and, uh, you know, sometimes it's just a job, but you got to be reminded that this is an amazing opportunity that we're caring for these animals that that do need our help and do need conservation efforts put forth for them. Mm -hmm. Um, We have received multiple shipments this year of other tarantulas and other spiders as well. And so um, we are very lucky to have the resources and space with our new entomology lab and our relationships that we've created with U.S. Fish and Wildlife to be able to give these animals a second chance. Um, Unfortunately, the government's options are very limited, and if they can't find a place uh, like our institution or another institution to take them in, um, they unfortunately could face, um, you know, euthanization. And so we're very happy that we can take them, use them to educate the public, perhaps use them in conservation efforts down the road. What is the closest place to where you are, where similar um, efforts are being made? We have a few colleagues around the country that have taken in large shipments as well. Um, Some of my colleagues at the university, uh, or Iowa State University, have taken in hundreds of tarantulas and other arthropods that I can't necessarily comment on because of the nature of some ongoing investigations. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also there's institutions like the Cincinnati Zoo and the San Diego Zoo have also played important roles over the years. Okay, so some spider secrets. (laughs) There's a little bit out there. These are uh, unfortunately... um, you know, in many cases, evidence in ongoing cases because of what they're doing and how they're being brought into the country is often illegal. Mm-hmm. And since February, uh, you've been asked to take care of other insects as well that have been intercepted, taken out of the illegal insect trade. What other seizures have happened and what are, uh, you know, those that you can talk about, what animals are now in your care? Sure. Um, most recently, we received um a collection of 20 um, large arboreal tarantulas that originally came from Borneo. They were illegally smuggled into the country uh, and were intercepted by um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Prior to that, we had a shipment of approximately 75 spiders. Mm -hmm. I can't give too much more information on those due to some ongoing um, uh, court issues. Uh, But I can tell you that some of the species that were in that collection, we believe possibly have never actually entered North America before. Mm -hmm. And we may have the only um, individuals of those species currently uh, on the continent. Yeah. Now, we heard from Rebecca earlier how climate change affects tick populations, and you were sort of nodding along Mm -hmm. throughout that. What are some other insects that are common to the St. Louis region that are affected by the trend toward longer summers and warmer winters. Sure. Um, You know, next year especially, cicadas are going to be getting a lot of attention in the news. Mm -hmm. We are are set next year is going to be our 13-year periodical cicada boom where the St. Louis area will probably have, you know, billions of cicadas that are coming out of the ground all at once. Um, And there's been a lot of studies on how climate change has affected 
their numbers over the years and in, in how they adapt to warming temperatures. Um, this year, we were not expecting many periodical cicadas to come out of the ground because most of them will come out next year, every 13th year. Mm-hmm. But a higher than expected number did come out of the ground this year. Uh, most trees that I checked out had at least one or two of their exoskeletons, the shells they leave behind when mm-hmm. they come out and molt. And scientists are theorizing that they sort of count the thaw cycles from winter and we're getting sort of fake springs as we get Mm. it'll warm up a little earlier than normal and then things revert back to normal where it goes back to being cold and that is tricking some of those cicadas they're saying oh that was just a very short summer and now it's back to winter so i'm going to count that as a winter and instead of coming out after 13 years they're coming out after 13 winters and that might be a year or two early now right and the way their biology is is they overwhelm the their predators by having lots and lots of them it's called prey satiation basically the birds and lizards and other animals eat as many as they can okay until they're full and the ones that are left behind get to mate and lay eggs mm-hmm. when you come out and there's just a few of you you're going to get eaten and you don't get to reproduce right right and so if that happens too much, their population could become too diluted and they may not be able to survive or they may have to change uh, and come out at different times. Okay. That got to the sort of consequences question that I, ha- I had. There's also been a, a noticeable decline in the number of fireflies or lightning mm-hmm. bugs, depending on which region you're from in Missouri. Was the Butterfly House's Firefly Festival back in mid-June somehow connected to that? So we have our Firefly Festival every year, and thankfully there were still many fireflies out for our guests to see. Part of the festival, each one ends where we go out into the field with myself and other entomologists, and and we go on firefly hunts. And we did see lots of them this year, thankfully. Uh, However, the trend, if you look, uh, you know, from year to year and decade to decade, is that there are fewer and fewer fireflies that are out. None of the species in Missouri are officially considered endangered or threatened, but there are approximately 10 species in North America that have recently been classified as being uh, endangered. Um, Our fireflies are are really uh, taking on uh, issues from many fronts. The biggest thing is probably habitat loss. Mm -hmm. We have fewer uh, fewer places for their larvae to, to survive. We have more pesticides being put out there and at night we have more and more lights that are making it hard for those fireflies to find each other. Tad Jankowski is a senior entomologist at the Butterfly House in Chesterfield. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury and Aula Kuzis. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? 
suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations, and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.